This is Mark Stein. Winter is a big blah, so it's time to get out of town with the ultimate cabin fever reliever. Join me on the 2024 Mark Stein Caribbean Cruise, sailing from Florida to the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Caymans, and Mexico for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Britain, Europe, the House of Lords. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. January 10th, 2024, six days to my trial in America's diseased and depraved capital city. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time, 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in fabulous Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev and also Tel Aviv. Uh, because the long vowel sounds uh, let you know that that's the zone where they hold all the wars. 11 p.m. in Yemen for all you Houthis, Houthi hooting out there. 11.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 4 a.m. in Singapore and Hong Kong. Sorry about that. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. Still kind of, sort of, a little bit sorry. Uh, 9 a.m. in Auckland. And a rather more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri, I would say. And even deeper into Thursday in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific, where my trial date has probably come and gone by now. And, and you may even know the verdict out there on the briny. Man versus Simberg and Stein starts Tuesday morning at the District of Columbia Superior Court, courtroom number 518. If you're minded to swing by, I, I still I, I believe the District of Columbia still permits open trials. It's not like that to business in New York, where the judge has uh, ruled that President Trump cannot speak in his own defense. Uh, I wonder if that might prove catching for defendants along the eastern seaboard. Don't bring along your Stein Online Liberty stick either to Trump's trial or to mine, because it will be confiscated as a lethal weapon. Man versus Stein comes to Washington on Tuesday, going to be running for three and a half weeks, maybe more, 
Uh, and in March, uh, at the English High Court, it's Stein versus Ofcom. So the tail end of my Washington trial may meet the oncoming London trial, which could cause some scheduling difficulties. And in between those two twin trials of the century, if all goes well, we should have just enough time to squeeze in the Mark Stein Caribbean crew. So why not treat yourself to a stateroom thereon? Like the man said, it's a weaker sun sea and civilizational collapse in the best possible company. Ava Villardingerbrook, Conrad Black, Leilani Dowding, Bo Snurdly, Michelle Buckman and more. Go to MarkSteinCruise.com for more info. Uh, it'll be after Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, so you won't be missing a thing because you can just do like everybody else does and get a helpful Democrat activist to send in your mail-in ballot to a state you don't live in. And fingers crossed the judges will have graciously permitted your candidate to remain on the ballot. Headline from, oh, my GB News. Quote, COVID face mask return warning issued over major surge in infections. Here it comes, folks. It's the official start of COVID season on Monday, or as it used to be called, Iowa Caucus Day. 40 years ago today, January 10th, 1984, the United States re-established diplomatic relations with the Holy See, Vatican City, Washington had had consular and diplomatic relations with the Pope and the Papal States from 1797, but Congress voted to end that in 1867 because of anti-Catholic sentiment arising from the role played by at least four Catholics in the plot to assassinate President Lincoln. So Congress nixed any funding for a U.S. legation to the Holy See. And that was it. And that was how it stayed for 117 years until January 1984, when William A. Wilson became America's uh, very first full ambassador to the Vatican. No popery on today's show uh, but we will have an Anglican hymn. How about that? That should uh, that should be that's something to look forward to. Uh, not the new kind of Anglican hymns that that awful Archbishop of Canterbury uh, is doing, but uh, some old school Anglican type hymn stuff. That's uh, that's uh, coming up. Okay, let us not waste any further time, but let us instead get to your question. Chris Oldham says. Dear Mark, first, please let me wish you success in uh, your trial against man. You are in the right. And had you been the New York Times or Washington Post, I suspect the court would have granted your previous motions to dismiss man's claims well before now. Um, it is true uh, that both those institutions, uh, I believe, if I recall correctly, filed amicus briefs on behalf of the defendants uh, when it was before the useless D.C. Court of Appeals at one point. Uh, no one filed any amicus briefs on behalf of the plaintiff, uh, but they certainly did on behalf of the defendants because they understand that this would be a serious threat 
to freedom of the press and freedom of speech in the United States were man to prevail. Man's lawyers, says Chris Oldham, will probably try the usual tactics of trying to throw off and befuddle a pro se party by constantly objecting. But given how you handled man's counsel during your deposition, you'll do fine. It is one of the big differences. I mean, basically, America fancies itself part of the common law world, but it's basically a perversion of common law by this stage. It was fantastic to watch Ezra Levant uh, in the witness box at the Ontario Superior Court a couple of years ago because uh, he basically uh, stepped up and sat down at uh, whatever it was, uh, 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> and talked until five o'clock at night without interruption. And as you correctly say, uh, the American way is objection uh, every 15 seconds. So you can never get up a good head of steam. Um, but I, uh, I, I don't know. I think I can withstand that. Uh, Chris's question says, will there be any way to follow the daily happenings in the man case? For example, will any on your, anyone on your team be posting a daily synopsis? Well, yes, they will. Amy K. Mitchell whom uh, some of those of you listening may well have met. She was my publicist for a while, and um, she was there at the Monk debate, I recall, talking to various persons in the audience there. And uh, Amy then promptly got an offer she couldn't refuse from the United States government and went off to be something at the Pentagon. <laughs> and then... Uh, uh, one thing, well, with one thing and another, there was a change of president and uh, Amy uh, departed the Pentagon, but she's going to be uh, back with me and she'll be doing a daily trial report. And I believe uh, our friends Phelan McAleer and Anne McElhenney are also going to be in town and will be providing their own coverage of the trial. With regard to your Ofcom matter, says Chris Oldham, will the proceedings in March be in the nature of a trial where the court receives live testimony from witnesses and documents, or will it be more like an appellate argument here in the US where the court merely hears argument from counsel and rules on matters of law? Given the picture of the Ofcom team included in today's post, yes, the sisterhood of state censors. These are all the people that Dame Melanie Dawes, uh, the Ofcom commissar, has hired to enforce Ofcom's new control over the internet. And I know a lot of people uh, on, on uh, the American side look at what's going on So oh, I don't know, you know, this is going to be a big... Uh, dear, who cares what they do in the UK? The, eventually, you know, they're not going to... If you look at the different laws that are now being brought in hither and yon about policing the internet. Eventually, these big multinationals will find it just easier to default to the most extreme setting. You already see that with things that uh, China doesn't want uh, people to be able to see in China. It becomes oddly difficult to see them anywhere else. Um, and I think it's going to be like that with Ofcom's control of the internet. Uh, given the picture of the Ofcom team, including today's post, your case takes on even more importance to rein in Ofcom's power and preserve some liberty in Britain. Thank you. And please do not have another heart attack. That depends on 
whether the case goes well or not, I may find it easier just to bring one on on the third day and uh, go for the express checkout on all this rubbish. Uh, but yes, we will be having... I do, on that last point, by the way, I don't really know how it's going to play in the English uh, High Court with the Ofcom case. Um, but we will, you know... We shall, I, I suppose I should, but we shall see. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Idaho Bob says, Hi, Mark. Since you'll be cooling your heels in the DC cesspool of justice for the next few weeks, a locale devoid of culture, fine cuisine and the arts, I'm curious what you're planning to do with your spare time. Are you planning to visit any of the participants in the worst unarmed insurrection in the history of the country? It's in the history of the planet, Idaho, Bob. There's been, this was the most insurrectionally insurrectionist insurrection ever. Um, you heard uh, whoever that congresswoman, Congresswoman Jayapal, is that right? What she said today, she said Trump incited an erection. Trump incited an erection. Uh, and that is that's in the Constitution. You can for once you can wave your Constitution at me because I believe it's uh, is it Article two or Article five where it says the president shall not go around the country inciting erections. That's completely improper. Um, uh, I'm not sure how many of those people actually can be visited and federal prison is actually always a, just a, such a chore to get into because they've got all these constantly changing rules on what colour of pantaloons you're allowed to wear. Um, it's, uh, it's, I think it's just... The, just I, I remember looking it all up when I went to see Conrad Black in federal prison in the United States. And uh, there were certain approved uh, trouser colours, and I made sure I was wearing the approved trouser colour. And then, <laughs> oddly enough, on the morning I arrived, they just changed the trouser colours a couple of hours earlier. So I had to go to Walmart and buy some appropriately coloured trousers. Fantastic. Um, uh, 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 or would the action of visiting the participants, says Idaho Bob, poke the uniparty deep state a bit too directly while you're appearing in another of their discredited courtrooms? You know, somebody, those, those people who are in solitary should not be in solitary. And, uh, and certainly more and more, I'm, I'm interested to know how many of their uh, Republican representatives have gone to see them there. I will say this about when you're on trial, though, it's just a general point. And it's particularly so because I'm not really in the best of health, but it's exhausting. Um, you know, if you take your trial seriously, and I've been in trials where basically my entire future viability hung on the trial, as with the Carrie Katz case, and so the first thing that happens is when the the court adjourns for the day is you go back and you may have time to, you know, have a, a cup of tea or whatever. But then you got to get on to, oh, who's on, who's, who, are, who what witnesses are going to be called tomorrow? What do we, and then we better get through the, the trial prep for the oncoming day. I remember, you know, when I was uh, in the first Carrie Katz trial, for example, I was absolutely wiped out, and I'd, I'd so I'd sort of fall asleep. I'd get 
back from, they'd adjourned for the day and I'd get back to the hotel I was staying in and I'd wake up, uh, I'd just fall straight to sleep, hadn't meant to, I'd wait, and I'd wake up and it'd be one or two in the morning and I'd go down to the crappy little all-night cafe in the lobby and there would be my uh, three of our four lawyers would be sitting at separate tables working on different witness prep uh, issues and uh, lists of exhibits and all the rest of it and and it's just a, it, and when you're in a tr- the thing about it is you get this tunnel vision the, the re- one reason I can handle it is because it's actually quite a lot like working on a uh, a theatrical show when you're uh, you, any Broadway types listening will know uh, what it's like you get a kind of tunnel vision you know you're preoccupied with the tiny little specific thing you're working on that you're trying to stay on top of in real time oh that number in the second act didn't go down well last night maybe we should uh, cut it and uh, no we've cut it and the, the number we replaced it with stunk up the joint even more so maybe we'd better put the one we kicked out back and so when things happen in the outside world uh, you, you, Betty Comden, uh, the great writer of Singing in the Rain, <laughs> put it to me this way. She goes, like, when you're working on the shows, you come out of the theatre, you're, like, wiped out. And uh, as you, you see a newsboy saying that, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un or whoever has nuked Guam, and you think, oh, is that going to be good for the show or not? Will that hurt us with the box office over the weekend? You're just you're just living in a bubble. And that's exactly the same way it is in my experience when there's a trial. Kitty Bits says, Dear Mark, did you hear the recent Tucker Carlson interview of Professor Willie Soon? I wish he could testify on your behalf. He's a true scientist, not a charlatan like a man. No one... <laughs> Well, just to be clear, I love the. <laughs> I go back a long way with Willie Soon. In fact, we're co-authors on a book that's available at Stein Online called Climate Change: The Facts, and we appeared together in Washington uh, in the early years of this trial uh, of this case. I think it was the fourth, fifth, sixth year of the case. We appeared together in Washington. And uh, maybe I should post that uh, photograph of that. It's rather sad to me because of the six of us in that photograph, uh, two are now dead. The wonderful Bob Carter from Australia and Pat Michaels from the United States. That's what happens when a case goes on, uh, uh, goes on as long as this bloody stupid case has been going on. Uh, your witnesses die. I'm very glad that Willie Soon is still with us. Um, but as I said, I, I don't need to watch uh, Tucker's interview. Uh, I, I, as I said, I go back a long way with Willie Soon. He's an excellent fellow. And if you haven't read his chapter in Climate Change, the facts, you should. Kitty continues, no one in the mainstream media is reporting on the trucker and farmer protest in Germany. I'm so grateful that Elon Musk took over the twits and created X where I can follow Ava Velardinger broke and see what's really going on in Europe. It's not just going on in Europe. It's going on in Canada. It's going on in the United States. Uh, Once you control the food supply, you don't need a lot else. Uh, And that's what these globalists are doing. 
you saw the Ava single-handedly, not quite single-handedly, but certainly she brought it to the world's attention. There were people bringing it to the attention in the Netherlands, but Ava and our, on our show and elsewhere brought um, the war on farmers to the attention of the world. Um, because it's not, you know, it's about as basic as you can get. We've seen, we saw in the early months of the COVID how easy it was to disrupt the food supply. We've all got used to, uh, you know, a really weird model at odds with human history where people live uh, and they can't sustain themselves with the food that is grown around where they live. So it has to be brought in from the other side of the world. Um, and uh, and uh, th this plan, again, these, these are plans that they talk about out loud. For example, one uh, of uh, Ava's fellow Dutchmen uh, is, has been put in charge of this World Economic Forum plan to centralize the world's food supply in five global food hubs. So if you think going to Price Chopper is crap, wait till they've centralized all the world's food in five food hubs. That's what they're talking about. In France, continues Kitty, oh, we've got loads of different topics here. In France, imams are now being allowed to bleat their call to prayer at some beautiful old Catholic cathedral. Is there hope for France? God bless you with increased strength and great success in court. Every society needs a transcendent meaning. It's not enough just to have celebrities and sports and social media. Not to live in, to, to live in the constant world of the present is going to screw you. It's already screwing most of what we used to call Christendom. And the fact is that uh, imams are being allowed to bleat their call to prayer, as Kitty puts it, because a lot of those churches are empty. I've, I've talked about this before. I think it was uh, last year when I was in France for Christmas. And it was very striking to me. You know, you go to villages that are beautiful medieval churches from the 14th, 13th, 12th century. They're beautiful buildings. They've got the best acoustics of any buildings uh, I know. And it's beautiful to go and hear a, you know, not pe a particularly distinguished choral group singing Il est né le divin enfant in one of those medieval churches, because even if the group isn't particularly uh, distinguished, the acoustics are, and it just sounds magnificent in that. But there's not a lot of church services going on, and you know how it goes, because it's the same thing that's happening in the UK and in Canada and the US and all over. They first start, oh, you know, so we're going to share a priest with the next village three miles down the road. Oh, well, okay, that's, uh, so, you know, I have to keep going to different churches every other week or whatever, but, you know, it's the na next village, so I've kind of got a relationship with those folks. And then the two churches sharing a priest becomes four churches sharing a priest. And then it becomes eight churches sharing a priest. And then it becomes 12, 16, 28 churches 
sharing a priest. And you find that on Sunday service, instead of just walking to your little village church, you've now got to uh, drive 15 miles uh, to go to the joint service and people don't go. There's really no, there's no solution other than finding a transcendent meaning uh, to society, which throughout most of these great nations, which are the greatest nations that have ever existed. They've produced the greatest art, the greatest architecture, the greatest poetry, the greatest music, the greatest literature, but they're dying. And it's interesting to me, you know, I can't even be bothered with the crap that gets passed off, you know, on the arts pages as great uh, of um, American or British newspapers as great art these days, because we know we've lost it. Who composing music today can write a symphony? Go on. Uh, and uh, 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 somebody in our comments quoted Leonard Bernstein giving an interview. He said that originality uh, had killed art. And his theory was that by people trying to be original, um, it means you don't use standard musical forms like tonality or standard... Uh, characteristics of uh, literature such as plot and character and you come up with all this wacky stuff that uh, is really actually or, or with poetry like rhyme and meter and all the rest of it um, but I think it, I sort of think I, there's some there's certainly some truth to that but it, we're, we're beyond that too in that it is interest it is a fact whatever those guys thought of their Lord and Saviour, never the fact. Nevertheless, the fact was that the the great music and art of Western civilization was in large part created uh, as uh, a uh, out of a response to the divine, and since we no longer contemplate the divine, the art has all gone to crap, and that's simply the way it is. So it would help us. Uh, I'm going a bit far afield because it's really a big subject and it's probably worth a book. But I tell you what, let us pause a moment uh, for a musical interlude on a not unconnected theme. Um, because this month uh, marks the 100th anniversary of the death in January 1924 um, of a fellow called, well, actually, I, uh, the first time I noticed his name on a piece of sheet music, uh, I didn't think he was a fellow. I thought he was a woman um, because my mum was Belgian and had a friend called Sabine. And later I had a friend called Sabine, who was also of the female persuasion. Uh, and uh, this particular name was Sabine Baring Gould. So I was struck by the fact that a delicate girly girl had written one of the butchest hymns of all time. And then I found out that uh, Sabine Baring Gould was a man. He'd been named Sabine after his grandmother's family. And in fact, they pronounced it not in the French way, but in the Anglo-Irish way, Sabin. Sabin Baring Gould. Uh, his great uncles were the astronomer Sir Edward Sabin and the horticulturalist Joseph Sabin, both of whom were also Arctic explorers, because people could multitask in those days. Anyway, Sabin Baring Gould was a very prolific writer, biographies, novels, history, poems, songs. He also took holy orders. 
and in 1864 became the curate at Horbury Bridge in Yorkshire. And it was uh, the custom at Whitsuntide. Actually, I heard from a couple of Yorkshire, Yorkshire men and Yorkshire women in the comments today. Um, he also took holy orders, uh, and in 1864, as I said, he became the curate at Horbury Bridge in Yorkshire. And it was the custom at Whitsuntide for the children of Horbury Bridge to walk to the larger church at Horbury for the Whitsun service. And for uh, the first Whitsun procession of his cur curateship, uh, this would be Whitson, 1865. He scribbled off some verses for the boys and girls to recite as they walked. Nothing fancy. It took him 15 minutes, and he always regretted that he hadn't laboured for longer. Quote, it was written in great haste, and I'm afraid that some of the lines are faulty. Uh, but people didn't find them faulty. They liked the words. So he fitted them to the slow movement of Haydn's symphony in D, and nobody liked that at all. So in 1871, Arthur Sullivan, one half of Gilbert and Sullivan, provided an entirely more appropriate tune for the Reverend Mr. Baring Gould's lyric. This song is supposedly controversial now, but not so long ago, a ton of pop singers recorded it. Paddy Page, Perry Como, Rosemary Clooney, I've chosen this version by the Harry Simeon Chorale. You'll have heard them a lot in the last month or so, as you do every year uh, around about December, because they had a monster hit with the Little Drummer Boy. For their follow-up single, they chose this song by Arthur Sullivan and Sabin Baring Gould, but they couldn't quite bring themselves to kiss off the Little Drummer Boy. Oh, 
Well, the intro and the outro were a bit onward little Christian drummer boy, but in between it was certainly full-strength, muscular Christianity. The Harry Simeon Chorale, Onward Christian Soldiers, music by Arthur Sullivan, words by Sabin Baring Gould, with the cross of Jesus going on before. It was sung at President Eisenhower's funeral. It was played by the military bands of the procession accompanying President Kennedy's coffin. I doubt any Democrat president would select that song today. I regret my children never got to sing it as I did. It was in the repertoire of our small rural Baptist church in New Hampshire, uh, but the then pastor preferred to sing it as onward Christian people. And I don't like to complain about everything. Really, I don't. But people is a very weedy word to be at the end of the first line. And the point is that even if you stick them with a wimpy title, the music uh, by Sir Arthur and the lyric by the Reverend Mr. Baring Gould are martial in every respect. You can't just change a word here and there and figure you've demilitarized it. And there's something awful, just awful, about the way that in the wretched fag end, that's in the uh, Britannic sense, the wretched fag end of our once glorious culture, it's not enough that we can't create anything, but that we have additionally to go back and make all the old stuff worse. You know who didn't have any hang-ups about onward Christian soldiers? Winston Churchill. In August 1941, so this is four months before Pearl Harbor and America's entry into the war, in August 1941, the British Prime Minister received the American president aboard the battleship HMS Prince of Wales, anchored off Newfoundland. And among the events scheduled for Mr. Roosevelt's brief visit was a religious service for which Mr. Churchill chose the hymns. From the Augusta, President Roosevelt comes to return Mr. Churchill's call and continue the conversations they had already had at their earlier meeting. Conversations, the results of which are to ring round the world as a clarion call to all free and oppressed peoples and as a death knell to aggressors. As Mr. Roosevelt steps aboard the Prince of Wales, he is greeted with that grand old tune, the Star-Spangled Banner. Oh, Follows divine service, Christ. bringing a special significance to the words of God. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Churchill are obviously much impressed. To use the President's words, one of the world's greatest services, for it emphasizes the right of all people to freedom of thought and worship, rights of which depressed peoples have been robbed. Goodbye, or au revoir, who can tell? The lads of the United States Navy are loath to go, and our own boys in blue are loath to see them go.
It's been a grand time. But now Jack Tai is going back to that other job of wiping Hitler and what's left of Musso from the seas. The ship's cat, Whiskey, insists on attracting Mr. Churchill's attention as he waits for the departing president's destroyer to get underway. And if you ever catch the Pathé newsreel of that meeting, you will see that President Roosevelt sings along with onward Christian soldiers and without needing to consult his hymnal as to the words. Uh, No separation of church and state there. As I said, Winston Churchill chose the hymns and as he subsequently reported to the peoples of the empire via the BBC, quote, We sang onward Christian soldiers indeed, and I felt that this was no vain presumption, but that we had the right to feel that we were serving a cause for the sake of which a trumpet has sounded from on high. When I looked upon that densely packed congregation of fighting men of the same language, of the same faith, of the same fundamental laws, of the same ideals... It swept across me that here was the only hope, but also the sure hope, of saving the world from measureless degradation. Uh, He couldn't say that today, and I'm not sure you're even allowed to quote him saying that today. I'll have to check with Dame Melanie Dawes of Ofcom and get back to you. Uh, The 100th anniversary of the death of Sabin Baring Gould, Anglican minister and prolific writer. If you're in the mood for a bit more Baring Gould, check out our Christmas Eve lessons and carols. uh, If you haven't yet heard it, um, because on that show, Mary Carew sings an absolutely cracking version of Gabriel's message, Sabin Bering Gould's English words to an old Basque folk tune. Mark Stein, live around the planet. It is 22 to 9, Greenwich Mean Time, a little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Let us uh, get back to your questions <laughs> Um, Dan Phillips says, Howdy, Mark. So is the English High Court anything like American jurisprudence, wherein the punishment is in the process, as you say, and has a 98% success rate? Is it but a quixotic quest on your part? You're a courageous man, and I wish you the very best outcome, says Dan from Telford, Tennessee, not Telford, Shropshire, where our dear friend Samantha Smith comes from. Uh, and which is not really a town you would want to be a young girl in at all. Um, uh, Just to be clear on that 98% success rate, this is uh, Conrad Black's statistic, I think, about the uh, American federal courts, where they win 97% of their cases without having to go to trial, because they can basically buy up all the witnesses they need pre-trial. That's actually what they do by threatening them with uh, Wells letters and, and which would make it impossible for anybody to sit on a, uh, a, a corporate board again. Uh, so, you know, when it's a corporate case, they, uh, if the chief executive is on trial, they buy up the chief operating officer. It's a completely disgusting system. Um, I don't know what the English High Court is like. I do know that English law has been corrupted over 
the uh, whatever it was, 50 years, nearly 50 years that the United Kingdom was in the European Union. Uh, but I'm serious about this. It's not a quixotic quest. Uh, if we lose in the English High Court, we'll we'll take it on elsewhere, uh, ultimately up to the European Court of Human Rights, which basically is the ultimate court for determining uh, things like the citizen's right to free speech and infringements on free speech. But the, but but you know, what is happening right now is, uh, I keep coming back to this thing, I don't even know what show it's from, but the the uh, Nazi guys sitting around, are visa baddies, because they've suddenly, know, the one guy suddenly noticed they've got the death's head skull on their cap patches and everything. Uh, and, and, and as I said, I think when you're slicing the breasts off confused middle school girls, you are basically the baddie. But there's a lot of other ways in which we are departing. We are significantly in the, across the free world. It's different slightly, slightly, but it's more similar than it should be. Uh, we are shriveling core liberties. Uh, so, for example, Klaus Schwab talks about ending private motor vehicle ownership by the year 2030. And he says, you know, the great thing now is if you go to Los Angeles, you're sitting in, you're stuck in traffic. Um, but if we were to end private vehicle ownership, then we would be able to turn all those big, ugly freeways that they have in California, we'd be able to turn them into parks. And so you could take your you know, your little kid uh, for a walk in the park and get stabbed uh, instead of having to sit in traffic all day. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> it shouldn't be necessary to point out that this is shriveling freedom of movement. Uh, and in fact, freedom of movement has never really recovered from the COVID. Uh, there's all kinds of flight routes that haven't come back at all and aren't going to come back. Uh, even freedom to choose what you want to eat. Oh, you'll be much healthier when you're eating all the bugs from the five designated global food supply centers. Uh, uh, so you won't even have the freedom to scoff your gob with whatever it is you like to put in your gob. Like the fried Mars bars they like in Glasgow, which has done such a cracking job of reducing male life expectancy uh, in Glasgow down to Central African levels. You would have thought a guy determined to kill off as much of the planet's population as Klaus Schwab would be in favour of fried Mars bars, but no, he wants you to eat cockroaches instead. Uh, but above all, and then even the, uh, the abolition of money... Uh, which the digital currency thing is going to bring about. Um, all these things are serious things, but the most pressing one, because we won't even be able to talk about any of this stuff, is this shriveling of free speech. And I think the there are people who are dead, like Vicky Spitz's husband, like Charlotte Wright's husband, like uh, a lot of the other bereaved that we've talked, uh, interviewed and spoken to on the Mark Stein show. These, these people are dead or crippled because of the dishonest conversation uh, that was enforced by governments 
over the last four years. So I think that's the thing. I don't even care about myself. I'm not, you know, I'm not in the best of health. I need this like I need a hole in the head. Uh, and there's a point at which, you know, if it has to be appealed higher and higher and higher, uh, I ain't going to be around to see the outcome. But I think it is still necessary uh, to do what we can to push back on this stuff. You know, the one I always ask myself, because I get all these, you know, constitution waivers from the United States uh, all, all the time, uh, bringing... Uh, this subject up. And I think now with the level of 24-7 surveillance, whether the American Revolution would be possible today. And uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, what's interesting to me is that if you think about the way they were able to get everybody who was there on January the 6th, to the point that there's no point even trying to organize a, an American version of the Canadian truckers because no one's going to show up for it because they know the people who went on January. And on January the 6th, it, you know, what's interesting to me and I think becomes clearer with each passing month is that the whole lot of amiable, uh, good-natured, law-abiding people all went to Washington on that day. And then there were hundreds and hundreds of people in the crowd who uh, direct, they basically, uh, they were, the people who were there on January the 6th were the extras in a Cecil B. DeMille crowd scene, uh, unaware that they were being directed in certain ways and to do certain things. And that is interesting to me, just in and of itself. But the fact of the matter is that the... FBI, you know, the, the FBI, these are useless agencies that, that, that can't even keep an eye on the Sarnayev brothers before they blow up the Boston Marathon at a time when they've been tipped off about them by the Russians. You know, this is a, an objectively crap policing agency. Uh, but yet they were able to track down all these little grandmothers in the middle of nowhere with no criminal records. Uh, because it was important to them. And so I think, you know, would the American Revolution be possible in a panopticon society? I'm not so sure. You, you know, so the options are not getting good here. The options, if you, if you want to change things, uh, you, have to, you have to have the means and the capacity to change things. Because... Um, uh, which includes being able to talk honestly about certain subjects, uh, which certainly after the last four years we know is something far more conditional than it ought to be. Uh, let's have a what do, we, what do we got here? We've got a question here from Michael Kavina. Oh, by the way, just let me add something on that. These suits against Trump... Um, the, these judges are just, which is again a big problem with the American system, are just making it up as they go along. And I uh, do not think that uh, that is, uh, I, at a certain point, he is to indicate that he's not going to 
be putting up with just some New York judge who's just making it up as uh, as he goes along. Um, let it, what, 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 what are we, I'll take, I'll do one, uh, maybe I'll do one more, uh, trial, uh, question here. Uh, where was it? I've forgotten, seen, uh, can't find where it is now. Um, uh, what is it? Okay. Hang on, hang on a minute. Just talk among, uh, your, uh, <laughs> oh, Kelly Walter. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Walter says, given your 12-year slog through the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt American justice system, uh, do you have any advice regarding how to stay the course through disappointing setbacks? I, You know, the thing about it is it costs so much money. You know, you can't win when you're in a case for 12 years, as I am in this Michael Mann case. Uh, the, that's just my end of it is sort of over 5 million bucks by now. So I think about, and it's not, it's not just the money, it's the time. It's the, you think, oh, oh, maybe, you know, to pay for that, cover that 5 million bucks, I could write a book. Oh, well, no, wait, I don't have time to write a book, uh, because I'm in this stupid, uh, lawsuit. Uh, so there's, you have to, the, the, the system is fundamentally corrupt and unfair. Michael Cavino says, Hi Mark, you mentioned back in November that you will be representing yourself at the trial next week, given the rising legal fees associated with the tenor of man's suit. Yeah, I didn't want to do that. I don't, I'm not in great health. I certainly don't want to do that. Really don't want to do that, actually. Um, but I don't have any choice, because at a certain amount, at a certain point, the money just runs out. And even just, even if you don't have lawyers, you think about it. How many times have any of you voluntarily stayed in Washington, D.C. for a month? It's one of the most expensive towns on the planet, not because it's desirable, like going and spending a month in some hotel in, uh, you know, I don't know, Venice. It's not because it's like Venice, which is a place that people want to go to. In Washington, the only people who want to go to it are like lobbyists, right? <laughs> so they can basically outbid you for the price of a hotel room. So they're the guys, it's, they're the guys setting, you know, people, people who want to petition Hunter Biden with promises of 10% for the big guy are the guys staying in Washington hotel rooms. And so even just that, even if you don't have any lawyer, just that is uh, expensive. But Michael goes on, so I'm curious, how is man paying for his legal counsel in this suit and the lawsuit he lost up in Canada? How many others are funding this lawfare? Uh, best of luck for a successful trial and improved health. Liberty stick regards, says Michael. Yeah. Uh, well, we've speculated on this since day one. Uh, I actually think one of the things someone said to me years and years ago now is he's not being funded by somebody because, you know, even if you are hot for the all the climate change stuff, Giving uh, millions of dollars to Michael Mann to throw down the toilet of the D.C. Superior Court isn't a useful uh, uh, 
disbursement of those millions of dollars. Now, he's ahead in Canada because he hasn't paid a dime to Tim Ball or now to Tim's widow, Marty, because he managed to run out the clock on Tim until Tim died, uh, the discreditable, absolutely discreditable Michael Mann. Um, but, uh, you know, the obvious thing then is that the guy who took the case uh, took it pro bono. And the problem now is that he's he's in the hole for 12 bloody years of legal fees. You imagine that. He, man is suing me for 20 million bucks. 20 million. And the thing about that is the longer this goes on, the less like you can't say to Michael, oh, uh, why don't we settle and uh, for like, say, 200 bucks? He can't do that because he's got he's man's lawyer as is 12 years in the hole for this. That's why the latest wheeze is that he's going to appeal even if he wins because he's going to appeal to try and get National Review and uh, CEI back in the case because they're the big corporate defendants, so they might actually have $20 million to give him. They, uh, they don't either. Neither of them has $20 million. So the whole thing is... So, you know, uh, by the time it... Uh, if that happens and it comes back from the Court of Appeals for us to go round again, a uh, new trial, this time with National Review back in it, uh, the, it'll be up to, you know, 120 million by then, because that's how much he'll be in the hole for. Um, it, it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible, terrible, just an awful system, really. Suzanne Rennie says, wishing Mark and his lawyers a great sojourn in DC. Hope all goes swimmingly for you in London, too. Maybe visits to the Smithsonian can help pass the time getting over the sight of the hockey stick shyster in court every day. You know, I used to like the Smithsonian uh, many years ago now, but it's all gone a bit too wokey, uh, wokey for me. And as I said, the thing about it when you're in a trial is you're just like... Stuck in trial mode all the time. Amy Torno says, Hi, Mark. I'm a new club member. My husband got me a membership for Christmas and I'm so excited to be here. Best of luck in DC next week. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Amy. That is, uh, we're great to have you along with us. And if I can just get through these next few weeks without a having a fourth and fatal heart attack, uh, we'll be around for a while yet. The Notorious Mr. J says, possibly not his real name, but the Notorious Mr. J says, greetings and continued improving health for you. Your radio voice seems to get stronger with every broadcast. I'm not sure about that. Best of luck in your battle in the swampy nether regions of the American <laughs> ju judicial... <laughs> I hate it. I hate swampy nether regions, don't you? Uh, as we face the oncoming avalanche of global elections this year, shouldn't we doubt our fondness for personality cult and accept the <laughs> existence of grey eminences? Um, eminence grise. 
uh, lurking behind curtains, lots of them. The sock puppets placed before us as the presumed captain of the ship are maybe just that. I have an impossible time convincing myself that the likes of Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau actually run anything. And for all the fearsome reputation Donald Trump has acquired as some sort of modern Ming the Merciless, truth be told, he really came across as more of a Jim Hacker uh, that's the hapless minister in the British sitcom Yes Minister. Uh, as more of a gym hacker who could barely make the gears of DC budge. Superheroes are found only in comic books and their interminable spin-off movie franchises. Well, you know my view of superheroes when it's all... Superheroes... Uh, kill off real heroes you know from tales for our time the kind of stories i like where a chap just happens he's an ordinary chap and he finds himself in an extraordinary situation and has to rise to the occasion that's the story of the prisoner of zender and inverted and updated by me it's the story of the prisoner of windsor and so the age of superheroes which not coincidentally is also the age of corporate storytelling, which is the death of storytelling. Um, superhero, if you go back uh, to how storytelling is, storytelling is a one-man thing. Ian Fleming created James Bond in all his aspects. Almost all the stuff that people like about James Bond, whether it's M or it's Money Penny or whether it's how he likes his drinks or whether it's how he likes his totty, is all there in the books. It's the product of a singular imagination. At that time, uh, the only corporate storytelling was things like, uh, as you mentioned, the notorious Mr. J, the superheroes, the um, Superman and Batman and Captain America, and then the guys who came along in the 60s, uh, Spider-Man and X-Men and the Avengers. And, all that. and they're not the product, although certain key figures played a role in their creation, they were owned by the companies and licensed by the company. And the fellows who wrote and drew them just got uh, paychecks. They didn't get ro royalties. They didn't own their creation. They'd come up with the most brilliant creator, like Jack Kirby, who was the artist on all the Fantastic Four and the Incredible Hulk and everything, and, and indeed Captain America going back to the early 40s. I mean, he basically lived in some modest tract house in some subdivision in California because he created the world's most valuable franchises. He co-created the world's most valuable franchises, but he didn't own. He didn't own his own creations. And now everything's corporate storytelling because the superheroes have swallowed the movie business too. And when you have superheroes, you don't have any regular heroes. And... Um, the personality cult thing, the, the, the perversion of, uh, under the Westminster, Westminster system, nobody votes for Rishi, well, nobody votes for Rishi Sunak, so forget him, but nobody votes for Boris Johnson or Justin Trudeau or Albanese in Australia or Jacinda Ardern uh, or any of them, except the people who live in the constituency of 
uh, Justin or Boris or Jacinda or whatever. And people used to understand that. They used to understand something about the nature of parliamentary politics. And now, because we live in the age of superheroes, people think that, oh, you know, it's the big personality politician. And you're quite right, Notorious Mr. J. No serious person can seriously think that Joe Biden is the chief executive of the United States, as that term is understood. No serious person can think that Justin Trudeau is Canada's head of government, uh, uh, as that term is particularly, or even Rishi Sunak or Emmanuel Macron. Rishi Sunak is just a guy who uh, doesn't have any feeling. It's just weird in a so-called democratic age. He doesn't have any feeling for uh, popular democratic politics whatsoever. He's an awful stiff whenever he's with anybody. He's completely unconvincing when he has to go among his people. Uh, something he, he's just someone who he, he he popped up out of nowhere and next thing you know he's running for the leadership the Tory party leadership so he'll be becoming prime minister but he loses the leadership contest and mysteriously becomes prime minister anyway and then you have like Emmanuel Macron Again, he's someone uh, the previous uh, socialist guy Francois Hollande was totally unpopular. And they needed someone to ensure that Marine Le Pen didn't get in. And they couldn't come up with anyone among these party leaders. So out of nowhere, this uh, dinky little metrosexual guy sort of pops up, uh, going around uh, everywhere with his mother. And then you, it turns out that she's his wife and former school teacher. Uh, and he just appeared out of nowhere, fully formed with this fascinating backstory. I certainly would like to have seen what uh, they were like together in uh, in their high school drama classes. Um, but uh, again, just comes out of nowhere and he's put in there uh, to run things in the same way that Rishi is. In the same way that Justin, who also, interestingly, is a former uh, drama school teacher like Madame Macron. And no, what is worrying about this is that, as you say, um, the idea of eminence, I don't like the idea of eminence grise because it makes me think of people like Lord Acton, who was actually an eminence of the kind. Uh, and these aren't, these are people, what's interesting is that the, 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 there's a permanent state now because the administrative state has got so big that there are just so many people who you can have elections and it will change the name of the particular politician, political appointee who runs this particular department, um, but everybody else stays. And so a, a globalist consensus has arisen that is basically immune to any kind of popular pressure. So we, are, we live in a crisis of self-government. Might, we might as well be back to medieval Europe where a coterie 
runs everything that matters and uh, the peasants are just the peasants. Here we've let the peasants participate in, you know, the equivalent of, have you done those things? They have it around me on big lakes. You can go to Lake Winnipesaukee, or I think they have it on Lake Champlain too in Vermont. Uh, you can go to lakes and you can be on a pleasure cruiser and they'll stage some Agatha Christie sort of murder mystery for you and you have to try and work out who did it. And, uh, and politics in a post-democratic West is taking on that character, the character of crap dinner theatre. Uh, because it's suddenly, you know, when you end up with Justin and Rishi and... I mean, who are these people? Joe Biden, Justin, Rishi... Macron, um, and and the the worse they get. Now I I haven't um, when when the notorious Mister J says that oh then you get someone real, the Donald Trump who is supposed to be the Incredible Hulk. Um, but but again he's he's uh, Gulliver being tied up by all these Lilliputians people nobody's ever heard of. So Trump is trying to do, he's trying to uh, close the border and there's district judges in some courthouse in Hawaii. He's, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. And nobody knows the names of those people. And it's important. You're not going to find. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen between now and November because America's so, American electoral processes have jumped the shark. So none of us know what's going to be happening. I haven't a clue. But I do, I do know uh, this, um, that in the, in the end, uh, you know, Trump has every reason to be mad. And one of the greatest American expressions is don't get mad, get even. And I, I, we, we have no idea what's going to happen between now and November, but it is the case uh, that we keep having unprecedented things coming along. You know, oh, a secretary of state has kicked the uh, leader of the opposition off the election ballot. You know, we're getting things that have never happened before. Because big countries only work if they have a certain um, self-restraint among the people who operate them. Otherwise, they collapse into violence, which seems the way to bed if this is all going to keep carrying on. But I simply have no... I think it's... I would be surprised if anyone other than Trump won the Iowa caucus next week. The question is whether any of these people that uh, the fake media profess to prefer, whether it, you know, uh, Nikki Haley, say... Uh, whether anyone can come a close enough second to give them, oh, Trump in trouble, blah, 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 right? Or if he just then marches on to New Hampshire and wins that too. Um, you know, you can't wish... Uh, th they do a very good job of that, but you can't wish totally fake storylines into existence. So if Trump were to win Iowa... Uh, by the margin the present polls suggest, uh, and then he does the same in New Hampshire. I think it's very hard to portray Nikki Haley as the coming man or coming woman or whatever, 
But I, this isn't, this isn't, I'm, I'm making the mistake now, uh, as we talked about last week, of t- talking about this, talking about what's going on in America as if it's politics. And it isn't politics, it's sort of quasi-authoritarian perversion of politics. So there's no point even in uh, talking about it like that. But I think you're right that, you know, we need, we can, this idea of, oh, hoping for a big media personality to come along uh, yeah, it would be good if the media personality is also uh, tough enough actually to drain the swamp or whatever. But we need broad cultural shifts that are incredibly difficult to do even before uh, the social media cartel and everything start uh, wrecking free speech. Bill Decker says, Dear Mark, wishing you all the best in your upcoming trials and tribulations, your success is much needed, even if it ends up only being a respite, such as is proving to be the case in Canada, where their online internet censorship legislation and likely revival of their hate crimes laws. Yes, indeed, Bill. I helped win a great victory, but there are no permanent victories. If Lord Moulton's realm of manners either shrinks towards nothingness or becomes culturally unrecognizable to those who assembled English common law and wrote the American Constitution, then is it inevitable that a lack of personal conscience will be replaced by something else? Would this be an AI-driven total surveillance state or increasing anarchy or something else? Well, the way I figured it in After America, I talked about this. And I said that increasingly, uh, much of the West was, much of the world was coming to resemble uh, over, you know, when people... Uh, they started running out of telephone numbers. So they introduced a, they would introduce a new area code overlaid on the same area code. So you'd have two area codes um, for the same state or whatever and uh, overlaid upon each other. And basically uh, that's what our world already looks like. Law-abiding people are more and more hyper-regulated in every aspect of your life. Uh, We've seen it now. They want to regulate your diet. They want to regulate how often you can take a plane. They want to... Meanwhile, there is... And California is a very good example of this because California, it's literally overlaid area codes of liberty in that state. Because at the same time as you have all these people who are micro-regulated within a 32nd of an inch of their entire lives, you have all these other people, as Victor Davis Hanson often writes about, to whom no laws apply. You know, there's all these laws about uh, health and safety and uh, food hygiene and all all you got to have, if you want to sell a hamburger to some guy, you've got to have a an industrial prep kitchen and all the rest of it. Unless, of course, you're an illegal alien and then you can just set up your thing at the side of the road and the Californian state will not trouble you one jot or tittle. And that's the world that is, it, it, you know how it is? You're going to have, uh, you, you're going to have to show your vaccine passport 
uh, when you go to catch a plane to take a two-week two vacation to Disneyland, but some guy who wants to come to California to blow up Disneyland uh, in the name of Allah, he's not going to need any of that at all. That's the thing. It's two things. Um, Michael Seth says, Hi, Mark. Now that our police have been accurately identified as the little messengers of those who hate us, what message do you suppose they'll send us next? I guess if in a month or two SCOTUS requires that Trump's name appears on all 50 fortified ballots, a new message will soon follow. We already know that simply being outdoors in Washington, D.C. on certain days will get you felonized and that Canadian journalists probably shouldn't go outdoors at all. This is in reference to the Metzoid. Uh, he's uh, interviewed me. Uh, but when he tried to interview Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, the coppers basically beat the crap out of him and then lied about it. With pandemic fatigue and an isolationist mindset gripping the deplorables, I fear it's time for something big. Good thing we thoroughly vetted all those crossing our borders. Well, the more this goes on, um, the more uh, the options for getting out, the, the deeper we go down this track, the worse the options get for getting out of this. Um, John O'Sullivan said this. We were talking, it was an interesting discussion, actually, because John is the soul of moderation on, on, on the last Mark Stein cruise. And Ava was cheerfully trying to radicalize him. And because Ava is a persuasive person, John was agreeable to being radicalized and going for more extreme solutions in order to get back to normality. But, you know, that's the point. We're not living in an age where anything is normal right now and getting back to normality is going to be difficult. Um, uh, Kelly Walter says, oh, yeah, this was the oh, this was the last point of Kelly's thing. I read Kelly's first part. And then Kelly says, on a lighter note, my son claims that Till There Was You is the song of the 20th century. What say you? Thanks for staying the course and continuing in the battle and all with such a plum and joy for living. Yeah, we've done Till There Was You as one of my songs of the week. It was written by Meredith Wilson. Originally in 1950, he's the guy who wrote It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. <laughs> um, and he wrote this in 1950. And then at the end of the 50s, he put it into his terrific smash hit show, The Music Man with 76 trombones and everything. And a lot of people record it. It's a beautiful song. And Shirley Jones sings it in the movie. Absolutely lovely rendition. A lot of singers picked up on it. Peggy Lee did it. And Paul McCartney heard Peggy Lee's version and decided that the Beatles should do it. So it counts as one of the very few standard songs that the Beatles sang and loved to sing. And in fact, Paul McCartney... Uh, still sings it to this day. And I would certainly, I think it is a lovely, uh, it, it has one of those, you know, there's two, basically in a conventional pop song, there's two bits. There's the main theme and then there's the middle section. And you always want uh, a middle section that arises organically out of the main theme. Uh, and that one does. So you got me all excited about that now, Kelly. Maybe we'll have to, play that. I don't have it uh, lined up on 
the turntable right now uh, because we have been marking 100 years since the death in January 1924 of Sabin Baring Gould, author of Onward Christian Soldiers, as we heard earlier. And you may be wondering, oh, what else did he do? Well, in 1906, he and the great folklorist Cecil Sharp published the book English Folk Songs for Schools, in which he arranged and modified the verses of what had been a rather obscure and variable and localized nursery rhyme into the version that generations of children across the world would come to know. I've no idea whether kids still sing nursery rhymes. I suspect they're too busy sexting and transitioning and that that uh, doesn't leave a lot of room for nursery rhymes. But until the day before yesterday, this was almost universally known. How well known? Bob Dylan sings Sabin Bearing Goo. This old man, he played one, he played knick-knack on my drum with a knick-knack paddywhack. Give the dog a bone, this old man came rolling home. This old man, he played two, he played knick-knack on my shoe with a knick-knack paddywhack. Give the dog a bone, this old man came rolling home. Okay, that's enough of that. Bob Dylan doesn't really do anything to make that rather dreary tune any more interesting. Uh, the knick-knack paddywhack give a dog a bone is really the only thing it's got going for it. But this... This is a lovely song. Sabin Baring Gould wrote these words in 1865 and Joseph Barnby set them to music. So Joseph was then the organist of St. Andrew's Church in Wells Street, Westminster. The church is no longer there. Uh, but at that time, it was said, thanks to Joseph Barnby, to have the best church choir in London. Lots of people have sung this from Tennessee Ernie Ford to the Osmond Brothers. Here are Joe Stafford and Gordon McRae. Give the weary 
Joe Stafford and Gordon McRae with Miss Stafford's husband, Paul Weston, and his orchestra. Now the Day is Over by Sabin Baring Gould, who died 100 years ago, January 1924. Through the long night watches may thine angels spread their white wings above me, watching round my bed. I certainly could use a bit of that in my hotel in America's diseased and depraved capital city next week. Now the day is over. It feels a bit like that, doesn't it? Tomorrow at Stein Online, Laura's Links. Laura Rosen Cohen rounds up the internet as nobody else can. If your Christmas presents stung up the joint, make up for it by giving your beloved an unforgettable week on the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise. edition Stein Online Liberty Sticks. Every one of them is signed and numbered by me. But don't leave it too late. They're going fast and when they're gone, they're gone. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.